Welcome to Retina Health for Life from the President's Corner, brought to you by the American Society of Retina Specialists. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Murray, coming to you from Miami. On each episode, we'll bring you inspiring conversations about your sight and the special role the retina plays in making healthy vision possible. We'll hear from expert retina specialists, as well as directly from patients about living life to the fullest with retinal disease. Join us and learn how to safeguard your retina health for life. Welcome to Retina Health for Life. I'm Dr. Tim Murray from Miami, Florida. On this episode, we're gonna talk about the retina, how it makes for healthy vision, and what you, our patients, families, and the public needs to know to support the health of their retinas and safeguard their sight. To discuss this important topic, it's a pleasure to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Ryan Rich of Retina Consultants of Southern Colorado. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Dr. Murray. So, Dr. Rich, you have had extensive experience in taking care of patients with retinal disease. Many of our patients, when they come to us, really don't even know what the retina is. Could you tell them what the retina is and where it is in their eye and why it's important? Sure. I like to think of the retina and explain to it as a, a similar to a camera. Uh, very similar to uh, the camera. There's a lens, there's an aperture, and then there's the film of the camera. And the, the eye is very set up very much the same where we have the front of the eye and the lens here. And then everything we have in the back here, the orange is the retina. So that's the film of the camera. The light uh, comes back, it focuses on the retina, and then it's transmitted through the optic nerve back into the brain. So, so Ryan, we obviously know that you and I are a little bit older since there is very few film cameras any longer. So for our younger generation, that's part of the, the new digital camera where that opens up and it stimulates those um, photoreceptors to allow the camera to kind of generate an image. So do our eyes work a little bit like a digital camera? Very much does. There's a receptor in the back of the eye as, as it, there is with a digital camera and certain transformation takes place with that signal and it changes to an electrical signal just as it does in a digital camera and transmits to, in the example of the camera, into a memory chip. And in the brain, that electrical signal transfers down the optic nerve and is interpreted by the brain into the image. I, I also think, Ryan, that many of our patients don't really appreciate that their brain and their eyes are actually connected together and that in some ways the eye is the leader for the brain when it comes to sight and vision activities. Yes, it's, it's a very interesting fact, and, and not very many people are aware of the fact that the retina is literally part of the brain as the optic nerve is. It's derived from the same tissue when we're forming in utero uh, as the brain tissue. So it's an extension of the brain and the only part of the brain that can be visualized without special imaging techniques. So we've heard this adage that, you know, the, the eyes are the window to the soul. Maybe not so much the soul, but it's really amazing to me how much we can appreciate diseases that are generally affecting the body by looking solely at a patient's eyes. How can that be, Ryan? Well, for, uh, for one thing, you're looking inside an organ, which is fascinating. There's no other 
I guess in the mouth and such, you could see some things, but you're literally looking inside the organ and its blood, blood supply, the, the arteries and the veins and the tissue surrounding it. So you literally get to see that uh, activity going on. And just as inside your heart, in your kidneys, other parts of your body, when there's damage to that organ from, from that disease, such as high blood pressure and diabetes, it makes changes that are very visible to the experienced eye. And you can, you can very much get a sense of how that disease is affecting the person uh, across their whole body just by looking in their eyes. Additionally, sometimes we can recognize diseases that have never been diagnosed before, which is also sometimes exciting, but also very difficult to talk to a patient about when they don't even know they have some kind of um, systemic problem or a cancer problem or some other autoimmune problem that shows up in their eye and then it, it, it leads to a diagnosis that they didn't know about before. So Ryan, how are we able to look into the eye, into the retina? What, what are the, the things that we do with our patients to allow us to be able to visualize and see the retina? Great question. So um, the, the longstanding and, and best method, gold, gold standard for examining the retina is with a binocular examination by, by a specialist. And that happens by dilating the pupil so you can get into the eye and look with either a microscope or a headset that allows you to look at that retina. There are other ways to image the retina with photographs and such, but there's really no substitute for, for an examination. It, the retina isn't just a, a two-dimensional object on a, a screen. It's a three-dimensional um, organ that is attached to other structures inside the eye and the examination allows you to see those other structures and how it relates to those in a three-dimensional fashion. I think that's an important, um, really strong comment that you made. We, we know that there's a lot of telemedicine that's taking place. And as much as the imaging technology is taking special wide-field pictures or laser OCT scans or using a dye to see the blood vessels, I think really the ability to look at the patient in, in a real-time awake alert situation gives us more information than almost any other test that we do. I totally agree. And, and I, while I think there are some, some advantages to the telemedicine and the photos because of a poor access if, in certain situations to, to a specialist, um, there's also many times where I've seen patients uh, who have been sent in for things that that were artifacts on pictures or misinterpreted on, on pictures. And they might come in thinking, you know, they have a, a serious deadly tumor or something like that. And um, while it's, it's always good to have a, you know, somebody screening for things that it doesn't substitute for a, for a, a dilated eye exam. I think it's important that we know we want the pupil to be dilated. We want a thorough exam. And, and you and I both get those special photographs and OCT and ultrasound tests when they're, when they're necessary as, as a supplement to our clinical exam. You have an incredibly busy practice in Colorado. What do you think are the top five patient conditions that you see routinely in your adult practice? Certainly the number one condition we see is age-related macular degeneration. It's a very most common loss of vision among people over 65. Second would be diabetic retinopathy, uh, most common cause of blindness under age of uh, 60 years old. 
Um, we see a lot of uh, aging problems such as retinal detachments, and retinal tears, and um, some other um, macular diseases such as epiretinal membranes and macular holes. So it's interesting that that small organ does so much and so many things can happen to it, but that we're really now in a, condi in, in a position for most of our patients to be able to treat virtually every disease of the retina. So could you talk to us about some of the, the more innovative treatments? I know you've been involved in clinical trials to look at better treatments, for example, for macular degeneration. Could you tell us what those treatments could look like for the patients and, and, and what they should expect when they're in your office or an office of another retina specialist? Sure. Well, as we talked about, the first and most common is, is age-related macular degeneration. And there's two types of macular degeneration, a wet form and a dry form. The wet form is the more aggressive type. And I have to tell you and I have to tell many patients that when I first started my training, there was no treatment for, for, dry, for wet macular degeneration. And, and retina specialists would just have to pat their patients on the back end and inform them that within a year, they would probably be completely blind, at least centrally. That changed very rapidly as soon as I started my training where these intraocular injections became available. It's very, very revolutionary where the just with a, an injection, of medicine into the eye could arrest and reverse that process. As time goes on, those, those injections are getting better, long, lasting longer, and there's some very exciting treatments on the horizon where we could possibly do one single treatment to last a lifetime. Um, there are also, um, with surgical interventions with retinal diseases, a lot of advancements that have taken place over the years. Retinal detachments, again, back when I started, were very laborious. Uh, the recovery was horrible in a hospital for days. And now we can send patients home uh, 20 minutes after their surgery, and they can recover at home with much better outcomes. So um, the medicines are better. The surgery and the techniques are, are, are so much better than, than before, and it's just getting better. There's so many exciting things on the horizon. So one of the things my patients ask me every day is, does their disease run in families? Does it have a genetic association or predisposition? What do you typically tell your patients about genetics in, in retinal disease? And do you obtain genetic testing routinely? Yes, thank you. The, that's a great question. The, some of the conditions we see are genetic and some of them are not. Uh, again, back to macular degeneration, there's a well-known genetic component to macular degeneration, though it doesn't guarantee that anybody in their family is necessarily going to have, have that disease, but it does increase the odds significantly if it runs in the family. So it's important for the patient to ask about their family history. And then there are many other conditions that are much more genetic, such as, <clears throat> excuse me, retinitis pigmentosa and some macular dystrophies that we can see that are very, um, very consistently passed on within families. So obtaining a, a family history and then discussing genetic testing is very important. So as far as offering genetic testing, um, for some conditions, it's not as well established, for example, in macular degeneration. While we know it's it's, uh, it tends to run in families. We don't necessarily have 
treatment options that will change the outcome. So right now, uh, until that testing gets better and we have better outcomes, uh, we, uh, treatments based on those outcomes, I don't generally recommend genetic testing for those conditions. But when we see a condition that's more likely to be uh, directly inherited and passed on to the next generation, we always do get genetic testing for those, for those patients and recommend it to their family members as well. And, you know, what's interesting is you talked about sort of these abilities potentially in the future to have one treatment that could last a lifetime. And I don't think most of our patients and families realize that the first functional genetic treatment for a disease is, is a type of retinitis pigmentosa that we can recognize genetically and then treat modifying with gene therapy. I think that's kind of amazing. It's fascinating, and that that's true. It, it was a single treatment that can change the whole genetic structure inside the eye um, for some of those genetic uh, diseases and reverse it completely. It's 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 absolutely groundbreaking and exciting, and and nothing like that had ever been done before. And there's other gene therapy options that are available for more common things coming forward, such as macular degeneration. We have the possibility in the future of uh, similar to the COVID vaccine, where we would be able to inject a virus into the underneath the retina, which can then produce the same medications that we are injecting on a monthly basis. So those are still early, uh, but they are undergoing active testing right now. Yeah, I think it's amazing how far we've come since you've started your training, but I really feel that we're right on the cusp of some major improvements that may enhance our ability to treat our patients and lower the burden. It seems to me right now, so many of our patients have to come back for these injection therapies so often that it really impacts that person, their caregivers, their family, their friends. So if we could have something that allowed the eye to, to become its own factory to treat the disease, that just seems almost science fiction fantasy. I, I totally agree and I've already started talking to some of my patients about that option coming forward and and I, I we're going to be able to offer that within the next couple of months to some of our patients so it's it is right here it's happening now what's well, it seems to me that you know we're we're asking our patients to be a little bit more aware of the signs and potential symptoms of, of eye conditions that could affect their retinas so that we can see them earlier. I think you and I have been strong proponents of getting the patient to the retina specialist as early as possible. But the other thing I think you and I realize is that if we have the opportunity to delay some of these conditions or eliminate them preventatively, that that could be incredibly important. So could you take us through, now that we've talked about what retinal diseases are and, and how we can see them and how we can treat them, what are some of the things that are, are important for our patients to do, maybe so they don't have a retinal disease in their future? Well, um, certainly some of the conditions, uh, there's not a lot of patients can do about, uh, do anything to pre prevent, like a, for most people, retinal detachment, simply an age-related process that they can't do anything to prevent, but there are plenty of uh, retinal conditions that can be halted or, or slowed down at least. And most important of which, and the most common cause of vision loss in people under uh, retinal disease under 55 years old is diabetic retinopathy. So certainly uh, excellent blood sugar control in those, in those individuals uh, over, 
over the years will practically eliminate any need for treatment or vision loss. Um, high blood pressure can be uh, a contributor to certain conditions like retinal vascular occlusions and things uh, where uh, the you have essentially a small stroke inside inside the retina. So control of high high blood pressure and and lipids and cholesterol, which comes down, of course, to diet and exercise. As I like to tell my patients, anything that's good for your heart is good for your eyes. So all that common sense stuff, diet and exercise and getting plenty of sleep and drinking plenty of water. Um, we have uh, eye trauma uh, problems that, that can be prevented with, with eye protection and sunglasses uh, from damage from, from harmful sun rays and such. So um, even people with, with early stages or early on diagnosed macular degeneration, we, we, we also recommend healthy diet and sometimes vitamin supplementation depending on, on the patient. I think I think it's important that the patients understand that they they're really empowered to make some big differences in their health, and most of them are those common sense differences of of really living healthy, diet and exercise. We were going through a period I think where I saw fewer and fewer people that were smoking, and that was one of our major risk factors for multiple eye diseases. But it does seem like there's maybe a little bit of a resurgence of that. So I almost always counsel my patients about whether they're smoking and if they are to try to stop. But Ryan, it's so hard. You know, smoking is a, is a tough thing to get up, give give away. And when you're when you're heavy or you're inactive, sometimes that's very tough to do that too. But what I tell them is every little small step can make a difference. And then you talked about blood sugars being important, and many of our patients will have an idea what their blood sugar is, but they don't really know the long-term control. And we talk a little bit about that blood test called a hemoglobin A1C. Do you use that test in, in your office to, to help discuss your patient's response to therapy? I do. In fact, I, I have a special place in my chart where I document that 100% of the time, every examination, and I include that in my in my communication back to their uh, referring eye doctor, to their primary care doctor, and hopefully their endocrinologist if they have one. Um, that hemoglobin A1C is something they know I'm going to ask every time, and many times they have no idea what that what that phrase even means. So I'll be happy to spend time on the first examination that to explain that it's a three month average of their blood sugar and what a normal range is, and I keep a, a an area on the chart that do documents the, the sequence of what their hemoglobin A1C has been. So I can see if it's going down or going up. And even if somebody has a high A1C, if it's coming down, I make a point to congratulate them and tell them that they're, they're, they're making progress. And as you said, with smoking, every little bit makes a difference. So I don't, I don't try to harp on them. I'm just, just proud if they even know what their result is. And, and I let the, the referring uh, pr primary care physician, doctor know that I'm paying attention to it. Also say on that point that once in a while, if if the patient seems to be working really hard and not making progress on their A1C, I feel so strongly about it that I will, I have a list of endocrinologists in the area that I will go ahead and refer the patient to myself. That might be a little bit uh, brazen, but uh, I, that's how strongly I feel about diabetic control. 
Well, I think that's really critical. And what you're really talking about is empowering the patient to take care of themselves. And the other thing I like that you mentioned, um, Dr. Rich, was you commented on sharing the medical information of the patient with the patient's other physicians. I, in my office, think that's important, but I also like to share the information with my patients. So we have access for the patients to have a, a printed copy of their note, or they can actually come in as a guest into the portal to allow them to look at their own medical records. I'm a little excited that electronic health records seem to allow us to do that. One of the few things that I think is important. So what do you think about patients having access to their own records from, from your office and their physicians? Absolutely. It's not only important, but it's becoming a legal necessity um, to provide them access to their medical records. And I think that's that's a great thing. Uh, same with you. A lot of my elderly patients don't understand even what a portal is, but we offer that to every patient. So as the patient leaves, um, we explain those two options and many choose just to have a printed copy, like you said. And on top of that, and I know you do this as well, Dr. Murray, um, I often like to show them their pictures uh, that we take inside, uh, inside the exam room so I can show them what I'm looking at, what I'm concerned about. And when they understand what this disease is doing inside their eye, especially if it's something they can control like diabetic retinopathy, I think it makes a huge difference in their effort to, to tackle the disease themselves when they can see while the, the swelling is coming down um, in, in my retina from, from my diabetes, those injections are working or my blood, my blood pressures come down a lot. And now I see less, less swelling in my retina. I think that gives them a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of tools to take home and, and make a difference in their own condition. Yeah, I think when we have our patients and their families involved in the care, it, it really empowers them. And I, I feel that those are patients that tend to do the best, um, even when we're, we're really approaching the patient in very similar ways. So I'm like you. I like the patients to be able to see their images. I like to be able to have that discussion. Um, I like them to appreciate when things are improving and what is what, what really helps with that. So I think having your patients active and involved and their families active and involved is probably one of the most important things that, that you and I like to focus on with our, with our patients and their families. Totally agree. Well, it's been a pleasure to have Dr. Ryan Rich join us from his practice in Colorado, and we look forward to having you join us again. I'm Dr. Timothy Murray from Miami, Florida. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Redna Health for Life from the President's Corner. You can watch and listen to more episodes on the ASRS YouTube channel and on popular podcast directories, including Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. For even more information about safeguarding your vision for a lifetime, visit asrs.org patients and follow ASRS on both Facebook and Twitter. Retina Health for Life is made possible in part through generous support from the Foundation of the American Society of Retina Specialists, Allergan, Genentech, Novartis, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. See you soon.